Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Krug. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Every January, as we ring in the new year, we take a moment to look at some of the major new releases of the holiday season. This year, we sat down with critics Sam Adams and Nicholas Russell to run down some of the blingier titles that have recently graced the marquees of multiplexes and streaming sites alike, including Avatar, The Way of Water, Babylon, Glass Onion, and the forthcoming AI horror flick, Megan. Needless to say, opinions ran as hot as the blood of a vengeful space whale. Happy New Year to all our listeners, and with the New Year comes a new crop of movies to be discussed and commented upon, and... Harvested, even. (laughs) Yeah, cultivated, reaped, processed. Anyway, uh, as we did last year, uh, we thought it would be fun to start, well, sort of start, this is the second podcast of 2023 uh, from us, but we thought it'd be nice to start with uh, a new year, new releases conversation, Uh, This time of the year is always fun because there's uh, usually a mix of kind of Oscar baity titles and then also like blockbuster holiday movies. And, um, you know, it's it's fun to kind of dig into those. And I think this year we have a really kind of ripe crop. So to dig into those, we have two wonderful guests. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Uh, Sam, why don't you go first? Hi, um... I am Sam Adams. I'm a senior editor at Slate. Um, Thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Sam, for joining us. And our other guest today is Nicholas. I'm Nicholas Russell. Uh, I'm a freelance writer, critic. Most of my stuff you can find at Reverse Shot, that I've written for Vulture and Film Comment and Brightwall Darkroom, among other places. Thank you both for joining us. So I wanted to actually start off by just asking, what's the first movie you saw in 2023? Theatrically or just... Well, why don't you tell me both? Theatrically and then just like the first thing you saw this year. Well, non-theatrically, the first movies I saw were... I rewatched both the Knives Out movies with my family and then in exchange, my teenage daughter uh, asked me to watch The Fallout with her. Um, and then the first movie I saw in a theater, uh, five o'clock uh, yesterday was Megan. Interesting. Which I think, yeah, we might talk a little bit more about later on in the episode. The same. Mine theatrically at five o'clock yesterday as well was Megan. So um, different places though. We didn't see it together. And then the first movie I saw of the year was Our Hospitality, uh, the Buster Keaton movie. <laughs> I was watching a few Buster Keaton uh features not shorts at the beginning of the year i love buster keaton so well i hate him so no i'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> you could hate buster keaton Devika, do you want to play your own game here yeah the first movie i mean it sort of bled into the new year we were watching it late at night uh was back to the future i watched it with my family extended family and it, you know it was it felt like a pretty timely watch for kind of the turn of the year and was a fun family experience and then the first movie i saw theatrically was avatar today at 3 p.m so yeah we'll fresh we'll get into that uh, ripe and fresh just the way you like them yep i saw babylon in the theater a couple days ago 
Uh, what a picture. Yeah, which we can maybe... I would like to report, I mean, we'll get into Babylon, but I'd like to report that Clint texted me as soon as he came out of the theater and he said, this movie makes Avatar look like Jean Delmont. So <laughs> <laughs> I will ask him to back that up in, in I a I mean, few. that doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> all, uh, all three movies are roughly the same length too, right? Right, so. exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, th- I watched uh, Four Nights of a Dreamer last night before it disappeared from Le Cinema Club. On their website, the Brisson movie. Devika, why don't we start with you because it's so fresh. Avatar, The Way of Water. It had a beginning and it had an end. So why don't we start at the beginning? So uh, almost it's like as much time has passed since I saw the movie as I spent in the movie. You know, like I saw it about like three hours ago, three, three and a half hours ago. And... My first reaction was that it was very long. Um, I am in my hometown in India right now. So there was an interval, which helped a lot. Oh, really? But it was right just like randomly in the middle of like a scene, just like a line of dialogue just got cut out. And then the screen switched to like an ad for a local menswear shop or something. Anyway, it was an interesting experience. I have to say, I have no memory of the previous avatar it just feels like so long ago i i was much younger the only thing i remember about it is like this big tree and some kind of romantic scene underneath that tree and i didn't really have the time or bandwidth to rewatch it so i was a little worried about going into the sequel without having that uh prior background but it really felt like a completely new movie and even though so much of the movie kind of carries on from, uh, you know, the previous one in this. Jake Sully is now fully Navi. He and Neytiri have a family. And, you know, there's this prologue where he's narrating uh, his wonderful, happy life with his family of, you know, I think he has like four or five kids and one is adopted and two are bio or four are biological, three are biological. And one is sort of a Mowgli character that hangs around with them. Um, and then the his uh, commanding officer in the prior, prior movie, Quaritch, Miles Quaritch, is sort of resurrected in the sense that his memories were downloaded and now uploaded into an avatar body. And he's comically evil. I mean, uh, I have to say, I, body. yeah, sorry, yeah, in a Navi body. And I have to say, this is one of my favorite things about this movie, how ridiculously comically evil he is. Just you know buffoonish and so he's he comes hunting uh jake sully and his family and i think the interesting twist is that instead of it being sort of humans versus navi it's navi versus navi because the humans have you know now like fully whatever they've become navi uh through this kind of resurrection process and so what i found interesting is that it really becomes kind of instead of two kinds of strengths uh, being opposed to really distilled in, down to two kinds of ideologies being in opposition. Um, and I should just add that, you know, a lot of the movie takes place in the ocean because Jake Sully and his family go to take refuge with a village of sea people, uh, I think known as the Metakina, if I hope I'm saying that correctly. Or may, is that Metakina or Mayatkina? It's 
met Kaina. I barely remembered that his name was Jake Sully. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah, I feel a little bad knowing that, but I've written about it. A few met times, Kaina, so. um, and it, so it, that also, I you know, I was kind of dreading the same old, but that also provides a nice refresh and sort of the action all being about forests and you know being in communion with trees. Now it's the ocean and whales and you know reefs and glow in the dark creatures and stuff like that um i think the thrills are kind of predictable but as someone who loves watching the ocean on screen and who passes uh you know when i'm when i, can, when I can't sleep i watch like big whale videos that's i find that very thrilling and entertaining so this definitely gave me a lot of very basic pleasures sam you've written so much about it go ahead I mean, one thing I love about this movie is how nakedly it's this, you know, three plus hour, 350, 400 million, 8 billion, whatever it costs, um, spectacle that it really just so nakedly proceeds from James Cameron being like a huge oceanography nerd. Right. Like he's so clearly, I mean, the first hour of the movie is like quite slow in a lot of ways there's a lot of kind of reintroducing us to characters and setting up relationships at, but the extent to which he just so clearly wants to get us into this underwater world um is it's so obvious but he takes also like so much tangible pleasure in sort of going into it the whole movie is shot in this um 3d high frame rate process which you, you don't have to see it in um, but there's that is the director's vision um which sort of looks like a, a you know high-end video game um, and I'll, you know, I generally hate the look of that thing. It's like the process that the Hobbit movies were in, if you unfortunately remember those. Um, but it really does pay off once the camera sort of go underneath the water. And in a way, it's just um, almost like a sacrifice the movie makes to get to that part. I think a lot of it just comes from spending too much time in the world of VFX and being overly concerned with stuff like motion blur, which... Uh, not something that I've ever considered actually being bothered by. Um, but it is just so much about like getting wet basically and, and having giant space whales that uh, have are sort of quasi telepathic and eventually have their thoughts subtitled on screen. Um, so it, it's super goofy in a lot of ways, but there's something I think really kind of wonderfully like uncool about it. This is like the least hip um, blockbuster, the least sort of like knowing, savvy, meta, one of these things in eons. Um, and I kind of love the the goofy sincerity of it, among other things. Yeah, the dialogue is just like, just cringe worthy line to line, but in, but it kind of works. I mean, I think that like, and the narrative itself too, like the the family aspect, the quest, the military, the military human uh, descending down to the planet like all of it seems sort of a hodgepodge of different james cameron movies that come uh, past you know like uh, all in service of this psychedelic <laughs> experience really rather than like any kind of coherent story or or anything that's more complex than really i think than kind of this basic pleasure that devic is talking about i do think you know there's a there's a message of being at one with nature there's this kind of ecological consciousness idea going on but i think really that like all of this only uh you know that's only valuable in as much as it serves this kind of totally strange uh visual experience of sitting through this film 
And the one thing that I did find comical throughout was the uh, Jake Sully's voiceover, which reminded me of uh, Henry Hill and Goodfellas. Like every time he, every time his voice came on, I was I was chuckling because he would say things like, "On Pandora." He also has kind of a Queen's accent, which I thought was funny. <laughs> you know, <laughs> on Pandora, you got to know your way around the forest, like that kind of thing. I mean, I, I'll say the same thing that I said about the first one, which is that I think the Avatar movies are great theater experiences um i i think i saw the first one twice in theaters first time in 3d second time just normal 2d but the thing i I think it's the same with way of water is like moment to moment it is so like engrossing and you're really just like immersed in it but for me as soon as the movie ended and i started thinking about it more i was like actually like clinton what you're saying is true it's like the movie is about basic pleasures of filmmaking and cinema going, which Adam Naiman said this in the uh, film comment newsletter, which is so true. Right, which right, is like, right. Of course, that's not. not nothing. Like to do that stuff very well and to do it on such a scale and with the resources at hand and to not have it feel like this incredibly like misguided endeavor is like huge and i think that comes from james cameron being like one of like the preeminent action directors like right the whole last 45 minutes is just like you hold your breath the whole time you know you're yeah and it's like it's and to me i felt like that was what i was really sort of holding my breath for was that part of the movie like not necessarily knowing that that part was coming but like that kind of sequence in the movie because i think as beautiful as the ocean parts are to me like some of the things that are virtues of the movie in terms of what people are praising about it to me just seem like reiterated marketing aspects like this whole thing about like kate winslet who's in the movie she plays one of the sea people you know holding her breath for seven minutes and like but that's not stuff you get from watching the movie at all like I didn't assume that anyone was holding their breath. So that's the, yeah, this is exactly what I was saying. I didn't know she was even in the movie. <laughs> well, so, okay, yeah, this is the other thing too. So like, okay, so she plays, so Cliff Curtis plays the like tri- tribe leader of the sea people. And then Kate Winslet plays his wife, who's pregnant in the film. And there was this whole thing going around. I mean, like this movie's been be- been being made for like five years. So like they've had like all these different talking points. But one of them was that like for our scene, um, they one of the, you know, VFX sort of breakthroughs that they had was that they could do motion capture underwater, which is like very difficult to do. It was like basically impossible to do before this movie. And part of that was that because they were going to actually be diving the actors um you know, they were going to do long takes underwater. And at one point, Kate Winslet held her breath underwater for like seven minutes, which is like, is like the record for an actor on screen or something like that. Um, Previously, it was Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And like, it's a good comparison, though, because the thing about the Kate Winslet holding your breath thing, which might seem like a really like beside the point kind of thing, but it's like, it's, it's something that really irks me about film marketing is that in the movie, it literally doesn't matter. Like watching the film, it's like after it ended, I was like, at what point did was that necessary for her to do that? One, because she's a Navi, so she's like completely computer generated. But two, there are like 
there's maybe one scene where she's underwater, but it's not just about her being underwater. Right. It's like a whole group of people. And that scene cuts away multiple times. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, it's like when Tom Cruise says that, it's like, you know that one, you're going to see him do it. And you're going to like notice the effort being involved, which like, whatever, that's its own marketing thing. But it's just like, to me, some of the aspects of Avatar that really bother me are like, I'm a sucker for awe and wonder. And I think that's like definitely what the first movie is about. And a lot of the ocean sequences in Wave Water are definitely about that. But I don't know, like the this time around, there are just details that I just like couldn't stop. I like couldn't turn my brain off about. I mean, we the sort of James Cameron's like conception of indigeneity is like a whole other conversation. And, like, yeah, I mean, that's something that bothered me. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, like to me, it's like the thing about like science fiction and fantasy, like cultures as they're made like there's all obviously a lot of effort put into like creating a, a language that sounds real and creating like rituals and like folklore and mythology and stuff like that and like as important as that stuff is especially in way of water it like it makes it seem like the navi are just really reduced down to like a set of rituals and like sort of spiritual beliefs that chance yeah well yeah it's like it's like okay but like what else do they do because like well, they go to this underwater barbie dream house and like integrate their braids into it right and they also like they all look the same yeah. too this is the other thing that like really bothered me this time around is like they all have the same body like literally they're all these like extremely right, right, skinny right. strong tall people they're none of them are old none of them are like have any problems their teeth are like perfectly straight it's their like, bodies are all this, it, yeah. it's just like there's no like, short ones yeah there's a there's a bit at the end of the movie where i don't know how much of this we want to give away but i mean like a character dies um in the last and i right literally like didn't know, didn't know which of two similar characters it was Same. and i had to Actually, sort of like reverse engineer it from like who was still yeah, alive in the following the person scene. i saw it with asked me like we did only one die <laughs> you know i mean it wasn't even sure I think that the indigeneity thing, I mean, it's been in the news, in the news as in like people have been talking about that a lot. And, you know, about halfway into the movie, I was really into it partly because it's packed with ideas in a sense. I mean, you can see that James Cameron has a lot of ideas and is in that sense way more ambitious than other filmmakers of his stature and scale. I mean, you know, he is trying out political ideas here and the fact that he's able to match it to really great um, plot and visual mechanics, uh, you know, that just feels, it feels provocative, you know, until a certain point. But then the more I started to like try to map those questions that the movies were raising to like the also real life parallels it was invoking, things became really muddled. And you know, Nicholas, you wrote this great review for us of Black Panther, the new Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever, which, as you rightly said in your, in your review, you know, I, I also I felt that that movie also had some issues with the way that it represents indigenous people. But it actually represents it actually like draws on real histories of indigenous peoples. And here 
this there's this attempt to create an entirely new fictional fantastical race but the aspects used to other this race are those that have been used to other like real people like indigenous and african people i mean it like the navi all have braids this mowgli guy who's like an adopted navi has dreadlocks you know it just yeah like you were saying they're just like some kind and of and he's white he's white too yeah, that's the other thing white. like spider is the name of that character and, and their accents i mean every kid they all have different accents yeah. that are different like well it's also like the like the all the people of color basically all the people of color are navi which like is like one of those things that seems like a like a sort of pc pc thing to say but it's like okay like that's really weird because it's like to me, also, this is the other thing that's really confusing to me is because there are humans in the Avatar movies. It's set in the future. It's Earth. Presumably, we're, there's a parallel history here. So it's like, the more I think about it, the more confused I am about like who the Navi are supposed to represent if indigenous people from Earth also exist in this timeline. Because it's like, is it supposed to reflect back on us? Like, this is the stuff we're supposed to think about now because we'll do it to another planet. Like, I, I, that's maybe getting into the weeds a little more than, like, you're meant to, but... What you're saying is 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 raising a really good point, which is that, you know, even though the movie's trying to be something about an other time and other place, it's sort of drawing on real-life things in a very muddled way, and that makes it so that or that makes it get caught in these like weeds. And I think what's dangerous or what's what's disturbing a little bit is that like it is that like you have man versus nature here, but you're fully the Navi are fully identified with nature. But they're you know carrying all these signifiers of indigenous peoples which are, they're, but their savior uses an AK-47. Like his weapon of choice is an AK-47. I mean, and then this, yeah, and a movie that's about like the supremacy of nature is entirely made on a supercomputer. But right, I mean, I think like, there are big like sort of concepts going on around here. Like I think one of the most interesting things this movie does, like the first one is it basically puts us in the position of um, you know, rooting for humans to die, basically. I mean, in the, in the first movie, we're sort of rooting for the Navi insurgency and even though in this movie it's kind of Navi versus Navi like we are fully invested in them like you know killing as many of these sort of white I think mostly Australian um humans <laughs> in this movie but then when you get into the, like the little details like one thing this movie does is um there's a sort of hunt for red October moment in the first 10 minutes where Navi like becomes English they don't just subtitle all the dialogue um but all the Navi characters including the uh, i'm just going to say these names because i know them, the including the metakaya clan from the first movie and the metkaina from this movie all speak with like different accents and the sort of the omakaya um, sort of speak with the sort of generic like quote-unquote african accents and the metkaina are more maori because they're led by cliff curtis but in theory like if if navi is becoming american english then the only person who should be speaking with an accent is uh sam worthington because he's the only non-native speaker, but it just like, and it, there's a little technical issue because he heard Zoe Saldana speaking like accented English, which was actual English in the first movie. So it'd be weird for her to not do that. And then they're her kids. And, but it's just like, it doesn't quite follow through on some of those ideas the way it could. But her kids sound like they're surfers. Some of them. 
some of them sound like they're they have the generic African accent, and some have like a California like bro surfer. It's just and some have like a Hispanic inflection. There's there's a lot of bros. I think the thing that will seem pedantic to people who just outright love these right, movies, right. and maybe you know, are something that like p- other people who are more critical will see as like huge flaws is like it's just that these things do matter in terms of like you can't i think james cameron you know has the box office numbers to be like yeah people don't give a shit about that stuff like you know they want to see spectacle and they want to be swept away and like hats off to him for having people sit through like a three-hour movie like in like and to take some slow moments in it like i think that is one of the things i appreciated about this new one is like the introduction to the ocean aspects are like he really takes his time and like while i don't think that the the production design of the ocean creatures is as um deserving of the time spent like it's still cool and i i I appreciated the like change in pace but but nat geo exists and if i want to see a realistic looking whale in the ocean I can just watch Nat Geo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and that's like that's one of those things that I was watching an interview with James Cameron where he was talking about Avatar and like engaging with interviews with James Cameron is actually very dangerous because if you like really like him but have never heard him talk, then right, it like right. will really ruin stuff for you because he's like so full of himself. But like he was talking about like, you know, he was inspired by like real life indigenous people and like after he made the first one, he, like all these indigenous tribes came to him and said that like they had like had all this interest in their struggle and like their history since the movie came out and he was like on a mission to like get people to you know understand and like you know amplify this this very real like an ongoing political issue which like all well and good but like again we come into the thorny sort of aspect of the navi are not the navi are both every like seemingly every earthbound indigenous culture and none (laughs) and like i think the the choice to to portray them as essentially perfect is also a very problematic not to I, i hate using that word but it's it just it brings up all these different issues because it's like yeah it's like they're they're like they're presented as noble yeah and it's like it's just like this this sense that you know like they can do no wrong and that like they've never done anything wrong like it, it, which like again like that even that like it's is putting it into a sort of binary but it's just like the flaws in these characters are not character flaws necessarily like and there's also not even like physical flaws i mean they're really like creatures in a fable yeah exactly you know they represent goodness and badness and their politics seem so basic and primal which you know that i do think is again kind of an othering trope uh this idea that if you're you know connected to nature and you have these ancestral and you know tribal backgrounds that means your politics are really basic too and yeah i mean it it just it does make it like I was saying, I enjoy the I enjoyed the fact that Quaritch was so buffoonishly evil. But you know, the very <laughs> existence of Jake Sully and people like um, you know, other other humans who stay be- behind on you know on Pandora 
indicates an existence of a kind of ideological diversity among the humans that we don't see in right. among the Navi at all. I mean, this movie does that to a very small extent by presenting two different clans that have two different ways of life. But one wants to kind of like kind of remain insular and insulated and the other wants to fight back. I mean, I think there's that's it though. But that's, that's it, yeah, that's you know. I mean, goes. there's the it I was I was actually really hoping that we'd see more of a confrontation between those two clans, both for like visual cinematic purposes or some sort of history of war between the clans right. or something, but I think that I think that this idea of nature being perfect is also really a, a dangerous. <laughs> Apparently, there are um, I, I believe the phrase is "evil fire navi" coming in the third movie. Uh, so maybe we can oof. come back in twenty twenty four and discuss yeah. that. Twenty twenty four, you're ambitious, Sam. Is that when it's supposed to come out? <laughs> that that's that's what they said. <laughs> we'll see you guys in twenty thirty two. The Avatar movies present, and will continue to present a lot of conversation just because I feel like it's like, to me, the way of water, the most effective parts were the environmental parts, specifically with the Pyacon, which is like this whale, this outcast whale that's part of the, I think Tolkien is what they're called. I like cried at that part. I was like, yeah, this is great. And like, although it is, it is funny when he says, when Jake Sully's son asks him, like, what's wrong? And the Tolkien says, it's too painful. It's too hard. It's too painful. Yeah. That's when the it's subtitles kick in. And you're like, that's another Yeah, like, oh, I was like, on. whoa. Yeah. That's the other, the other thing, too. I was like, they can, t like, not that they can talk, because I know, like, whales are very smart, but it just, like, it just starts happening. Right. The whale just starts talking. And, and like, that they're just, like, they're actual sentences. It's not like, Lassie, like, oh, something wrong, boy? It's like, no, this is an yeah, actual yeah, yeah. conversation with sentences being yeah. exchanged. And they have the psychology of, like, 15-year-old boys. <laughs> yeah, that's like what exactly where yeah the, the first thing he says i mean that part is great and a very inexplicable political again kind of ethos of no violence even in self-defense yeah the non-violence thing like ultimately like i think james cameron is on the side of pyacon <laughs> which is like you know yeah violence is necessary sometimes which like cool yeah. but it's just like well, this brings up the question, is he pro-alien and aliens, or is he, is he on the side of the Marines and aliens? Well, that's the thing. It's like, I think he has, a, like, I think his, his thinking has definitely evolved right. since Aliens. Like, and I think that there's a lot of self-critique in the Avatar movie, yeah, especially yeah. when it comes to, like, the military uh -huh. and, like, the gung-ho kind of stuff. But he still loves that stuff. There is, like, a whale, there's, like, a whale hunting sequence in this movie that's, like, basically, like, sort of alien hunting in aliens where the, you know, yeah. the whale hunters have all this like sort of cool, like zingy dialogue, like sub team, get wet and stuff. And you're sort of following them along and in it, and then it gets to the end. And there's this really, I mean, the most sort of horrific operatic drawn out death in the movie is when they kill this sort of queen Tolkien. Um, and it's like, Oh, look what you, look what I made you root for. Look how easy you are to get on this side. Right. Yeah. And I think like those are the most effective mo moments in the movie to me because it's like it 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 is not even allegorical anymore. It's sort of like okay, yeah, like this is real. Which like I think like it, it, the allegory is not a bad thing. It's just that in a movie that is trying to go for a very direct, sort of simple, like storytelling, the details itself are very contradictory. And like, I think when it comes to the Navi specifically and like the culture, but like his introduction of this like ocean life thing is 
it's potentially more interesting just because it's like okay like there are other forms of intelligence on this planet that like that make more sense in the uh, sort of activist mode that he's like trying to go for here which like is very prominent and like very evident you can't like separate avatar from that which i appreciate but you know it's also like... whales are not made up so intelligent whales i mean not the same as the tolkien but they exist and so i think yeah you're right like when that whale is killed it there's something where it it just goes beyond allegory and something really feels real uh, about it and the emotional impact. I wanted to mention another detail, which is that they, so apparently these like human, like bounty hunter types or like they're, they're whale poachers um, are, are poaching yeah, whales to extract some brain fluid, which is called by the way, Amrita, which is Sanskrit for literally like nectar of immortality. Like it's nectar. You know, and it's a small detail, but it's just like James Cameron, like borrowing from everywhere, these tiny details and making up. I mean, it's this movie's unobtainium. Right. Like right. In, in some ways, this movie is exactly the same as the first one. It's just like there are the, the roles have sort of been shifted over. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Ovid. IndieWire recently called Ovid an increasingly essential streaming service that's perfect for cinephiles determined to create their own canon. Ovid's collection is hand-curated by human beings, never an algorithm, with films and series you won't find anywhere else. This month on Ovid, check out Blue Island, a fearless documentary about Hong Kong citizens and their long-standing culture of protest. The Guardian called Blue Island one of the best movies you didn't see in 2022, and now you can watch it exclusively on Ovid. With documentaries and feature films you won't find anywhere else, Ovid invites you to look at life through a different lens. And now, through the end of January, sign up at ovid.tv and use the code ANNUAL, that's A-N-N-U-A-L, to receive 50% off the first year of your subscription. There is a very funny line sort of near the beginning when um, Edie Falco's character, who's like sort of the new human Quaritch in this movie, like the head of the, you know, human Marine forces, like Quaritch's Navi body comes back and she's explaining to him like what's happened in the last 30 years. And she just says like, oh, well, it's not about mining anymore. And it just, it's so like, I oh, remember that any entertaining <laughs> stuff from the first movie. Yeah. We're not doing that anymore. We've found a new thing. It's like, it's whale juice now. <laughs> yeah. And it like makes you like live forever or something right. or like stop yeah, stop aging. Like, yeah. And then they also completely um, forget about that and then just have it be about like Quaritch trying to kill Jake. Right, right. They totally, yeah. they totally dropped. The scene in which they extract that though is like amazing. And the marine biologist played by Jermaine Clement. Can we talk about it? <laughs> Jermaine, whose accent, Jermaine, whose accent slips a lot in that movie. <laughs> yeah. He is not like, used well. From no. Yeah. What is he doing He's in not... this movie? Is he going to like emerge in the next one as an important character? Because no, he gets his art. He gets killed. Oh, that's right. He no, does. it's the other guy who gets killed. It's the bad guy who gets to keep his Australian accent. The other guy gets his arm. Like, I thought he gets. gets his, I thought it was Jermaine Clement who got his arm. <laughs> I was totally. No, no. But why is he in this movie like... for five minutes as like a morally ambivalent marine biologist? who seems to be cackling at his own impending death at the hands of a whale. Well, this is the other thing that I think is interesting. And like, maybe this could be the last (laughs) thing, but like, I I think what is interesting about these movies is like, they are a lot like the Lord of the Rings movies in terms of like, one, they're being made in New Zealand, but two, (laughs) like they are like this like massive. So they have to hire local actors. Yeah, well, sort of, but it's just like, 
the little details of like the production are really interesting to me because it's like, you know, they Weta, which is doing like most of the visual effects for like the Avatar movies, is based in New Zealand, and you have like all of these resources that are being made to like create this like multi installment saga that I think you know it naturally sort of affects the way that like one who's in the movie but two like how the like landscape is used like obviously all of Pandora is like fake but like it's one of those things that it New Zealand as like a like sort of cinematic uh hub for like certain kinds of movies being made which is like it's sort of ironic because it's like it's a s- incredibly small place and like the biggest movies ever are made there. And like, and there's like a very, you know, robust indigenous culture that like, and the, but also the land is also like being destroyed by these productions. Like this is like a big problem. Like it was a problem when Lord of the Rings was doing it. It was a problem when Rings of Power, the uh, Amazon show is doing it. And it's like, I think James Cameron is definitely more aware of it when making Avatar, but it's still like a really big issue. It's like, it's just one of those things that like, it like, there are levels of irony, like when you start looking at like how these movies are made and like what they're saying that like, I mean, the movie itself, like it's, it's contradictory on its face. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's purely like a digital creation that says that like, we need to get that the only true path is to reconnect your braid to the giant nature tree. (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, I think it has one of those like carbon neutral bugs in the credits where it says that they like, right, but right. then I was just thinking like, this is also being projected in like the most like sort of energy intensive, like how much energy does it take just to power like one 3D IMAX screening of this movie? How many towns could you run on that? Sure. Energy? But even so, like, even so, like, like you could shoot like as, as a, Nat Geo exists, yeah. you know, like, yeah. the, like natural, the nature, the natural world is there. And it's pretty amazing. This is amazing, too. This is amazing, too. But I'm just, you know, there's a weird... Also, like, scuba diving exists. He he did uh, executive produce a, a four-episode Nat Geo miniseries yeah. about whales with Sigourney Weaver voiceover. Right, right. So. Nat, Geo, Nat Geo, which is owned by Disney. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, all, it's all connected. <laughs> well... Shout-outs to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Nat Geo. I mean, I guess it's the same thing. <laughs> and Disney. Yeah. And ESPN, ABC. Okay, shout out to <laughs> all, Wales. All the homies. Shout out to, shout out to Wales. That's my last word. Yeah, truly. Yeah. Uh, I really want to hear uh, Clint and Sam talk about Babylon, which is also a much buzzed about movie right now. Nicholas and I haven't seen it, but... Also featuring Navi. Which Sam pointed out. Yes. yes, actually, also featuring. Explain this. For... All right. Well, I, the the very short version of this three hour and change movie is this is sort of a um, concocted history of the early uh, Hollywood movie industry, covering the transition to sound, and then eventually, I guess, petering off in the mid '30s somewhere, and then jumping to an epilogue in 1952, and it has. Um, these characters who are sort of, but not entirely, Anna Mae Wong and John Gilbert and Clara Bow. Um, and then eventually what happens, we follow this uh, completely invented character who's um, this sort of Latino like uh, studio executive in the 20s and 30s, which is Starts not a thing. Like a that, gopher. Yes, which is not a, a, not a thing that existed at the time. Um, and then he sort of um, 
falls out of the industry. There's lots of like tragedy and stuff. And then it, it, the ending of the movie comes back to 1952. He comes back to Hollywood for the first time in like 15 years and sits down in a movie theater to watch uh, Singing in the Rain. And then he has this kind of like Stargate type vision of the future of movies, which <laughs> kind of becomes this, yes, this experimental film. Uh, there's like this big sweeping shot of the audience, like all wrapped before uh, Gene Kelly uh, dancing in the rain. Um, and it goes back to him in the balcony, he has this sort of like vision of the future, sort of like, I guess 2001 meets like the end of Raising Arizona or something. Um, but, and then it just becomes this like montage of like the history of the movies starting with like, uh, you know, Melies, and then eventually going through, getting into T2. And the, the climax of this thing is a cut from a shot from the first Avatar that then smash cuts to uh, Ingmar Bergman's persona, um, <laughs> which is, that's the whole history of the cinema in two shots right there, folks. And it's very, it's it's much shorter than I expected. Because I'd read something about this and I was like, oh, this is going to be like, 45 minutes of you know just rapid fire it's, yeah it's gonna be like an in memoriam at the at the oscar i mean it did it felt longer the first time i saw it when i did not know it was coming it's like what the fuck is happening right now um and then i watched it again last night yeah it is like much briefer in part because then there's like several minutes of them just like throwing dye packs into fish tanks um and just you know like colors swirling yeah. all over the place oh and, the colors and, swirl and then it just goes into yeah like water being dropped or colored water being dropped into tanks and like footage of that and i was like is this i don't know what i have i have very little to say about babylon because like i don't have anything good to say about babylon <laughs> i haven't seen this yeah, movie i haven't no. seen this movie but i've as we were talking about it's like very polarizing and i want to ask you guys since you have seen it do you think that jamie and giselle the writer director is taking it seriously or is like, is there any taking taking like, what just, like, seriously? Is he is it a self wank this movie? Like, do you think that he's like actually like, you know, drinking from his own supply? Like, or is there like a critique to be made? There? You think he's criticized? So to me, that the movie starts off with this like bacchanal, you know, bacchanalia of just like it starts with like elephant shit, right? Like, yes. yeah, it starts with elephant shit. Yes, the elephant shit. But then it immediately goes to this big party. And like you have like this fatty Arbuckle character who like almost kills this young prostitute that he's with, and but this it's all presented in this like madcap uh, circus vibe thing going on. It's just really like, and it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be funny. So I don't think he's. I think he's drinking his. I do think like I think that. And the movie as the movie goes on, sound ruins that. And the fun times are no longer there and they have to go to these stuffy parties with rich people and cozy up to the rich people in order to get funding for their movies and maintain their stardom. But these people's spirit of anarchy and zaniness is crushed forever. And that, but that spirit, that anarchy and zaniness was like, people were like dying and just like, it was just like awful. It's it's also just like, I mean, this is not the filmmaker that I want to sort of lecture me about like the anarchic spirit of early Hollywood, like this big Bacchanal scene at the, the movie. And I, I, I will confess I'm not entirely in a position to, to judge this myself, but it feels to me like an orgy scene made by someone who's never been to an orgy. Um, like, yeah. I, this is not the guy like I want to see, you know, like you watch Boogie Nights and you're like, Paul Thomas Anderson has done a lot of cocaine, um, but I don't watch this movie and think like Damien Chanzel has been to a lot right. of orgies. <laughs> well. I mean, the cocaine, I, I mean, like, 
the drug stuff is just like yeah, the the whole thing. It just it does the thing is like there's so much nudity and there's so much sex, but it, there's nothing sexy about any of it. So James Cameron has definitely been underwater, but Damien Chazelle has not been to orgies. <laughs> to sum up, yes, yes. <laughs> or he's having a he might not remember them very clearly as clearly as James Cameron remembers being underwater. James Cameron was literally having lunch on the deck of the Titanic uh, during 9-11. <laughs> I mean, I just don't. I think that my problem with this movie is, is is pretty basic. It's extremely boring. It's three. It's three hours long. I was just like, there are these long speeches that every character gives about how cinema is art that are just so basic and like irrelevant to what's actually happening in the movie or their lives, and just wedged in, and they just go on forever. And I don't understand. And I, you know, ultimately, I don't understand what. Damien Chazelle is actually trying to say is he trying to say that like that movies have lost this anarchic spirit spirit is this what we're what movies bring us back to to connect with are his examples of like high, film as high art like persona and avatar and are, like what I just don't understand where he's what he's go where he's going and of course singing in the rain which is like you know a good good example sure but like I, it just seems totally incoherent, and I'm not sure that there's any... It, to me, it just doesn't seem like there was any thought put into why they were making this other than just to make, like, a real crazy... Have a lot of crazy, like, screwball activity happening in every scene. Yeah, I mean, the ending montage kind of sums it up in that it's a real, like, tribute to the movies, like, capital M as an abstract concept, but doesn't feel like it's actually zeroed in on any any particular idea about why movies are important or matter yeah and that montage is essentially like what happens at the oscars every you know like it's not it's not like more complex than an oscars montage no it's just like a like a chuck workman clip package it's interesting to me to hear about it the juxtaposition between like the beginning of the movie where it's like you know this like crazy bacchanalian orgy and it's crazy but it's not it's just like like there's just a lot of like nipples you know, that's it. Like, that's what's crazy about it. Well, that's the other thing, too. It's like, I was going to say, like, I figured maybe, like, the ending montage was going to be, like... And Flea. Oh, yeah, Flea's in it. I keep forgetting Flea's about that. Um, the ending montage was sort of going to be, like, okay, like, in our, like, on wonder being swept up and by the movies, like, also remember that, like, the stuff that it takes to make these movies is actually, like, maybe bad. I don't know. But like, it seems like any idea of that is like too. I think that's beyond the scope of the movie in my, I mean, or if that had, if that was part of the movie, it's not, it's not in the final product. And you have, you know, I think that like you have Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt as these heroes, right. And they're heroic. They're presented as like larger than life figures that, that the audience should aspire to be like in some way but they're really kind of disgusting. And then they both have these really like tragic ends that are a direct result of their being in the movie. Yeah, I mean, and being discarded. And just on a filmmaking level, like this, the scene of Brad Pitt's demise, like drove me crazy because that was near the end of the movie. And I was like, just have him walk in the room, a beat and then a gunshot. Like, that's it. We don't need like, he walks back across the camera. Like he gets, he gets the gun. He wa- like spoil. This is a spoiler alert, but whatever. He gets <laughs> yes. the gun. He walks across the the shot again. He walks into the bathroom. I'm like, okay, 
let's wrap this up here. That's why, like, we, he walks back across. Then he walks back across once again. Then you have a splatter of blood. I'm like, just walk into the room, gunshot, splatter of blood. Like, like why? Why? I was just like, I just, I think it's, I was unlike Avatar, which I didn't think felt like three hours. Like, I was excited. I didn't I was, either. Like, engaged yeah. the whole time. Like, I, it went by. It was, you know, it was fun and like, and very very well made this just like there's no reason for this to be three and a half hours long it should be like an hour and a half and it would still be pretty bad i think but like shout out to my mom my mom who never walks out of movies she did 20 minutes of that movie that she walked out so wow i'm impressed that she walked in what was her reasoning she just like i think well here's the thing like I love my mom. My mom is the entire reason why I like started like watching movies like as a kid. But like she loved La La Land. She like I think she she really loves like like romance in movies and romance of movies, which I think La La Land is that whether you like it or not. Like and even Whiplash, there's like a sort of like not romance but there's a sort of like swelling sort of like crescendo at the end that like can be interpreted i think those movies are both uh, to use a word we used with avatar those movies are both primal in some way yeah in a very different way from avatar and same with like same with first man too like i think like you know there's a there's a trajectory there that i think like she was expecting for babylon and I've seen a lot of people saying like Babylon is like Damien Chazelle saying like fuck you to the studio because like basically after La La Land you get to do whatever you want and he made this movie that like is going to tank his career or whatever. This is what people it's are like saying. It's like his his metal machine music. Yeah, I guess. But it's just like I think like she, my mom definitely felt taken aback by like the tone of the movie. Again, I haven't seen it, so I don't know what it's like. But hearing you guys describe it and, and reading about it, it sounds like pretty sort of intentionally provocative. I mean, it's adolescent at the base, at the level of like a, of like sub Beavis and Butthead provocation. You know, like to me, like it's not like, like, and I think that's what she was provocative. Like, like, yeah, it's just like childish. Yeah. And like, I I do think there's a sequence like, no, no, sorry, I'm done. Um, I'm I'm out. (laughs) Tapping out. Yeah. I I mean, there is like one sequence late in the movie. I was sitting through it thinking like, this is all a movie about like how crazy Hollard used to be. And it's just like people doing drugs and having sex. And that seems like pretty low stakes. And there is a sequence towards the end of the movie where um, Margot Robbie's character like ends up in debt to this um, sort of terrifying gangster played by this sort of uh, like ether huffing Toby Maguire. Um, and, and then they sort of follow him into this sort of like Stygian last act of seven uh, kind of hellhole, And it was able to get her out of debt. And that is like, I was like, okay, now we're actually doing something like a little bit crazy. This is not just like, Hey, people like occasionally took their shirts off in the twenties. Um, and it's not better exactly, but at least it like, it was something. I, okay, yeah, I, I was, I had high hopes at that moment. I mean, I, I actually, I thought that the, you know, not to spoiler alert again, but I didn't think that that was very good either. <laughs> so, no, I, I thought, so, I just um, thought like that part. I was like, okay, now we're gonna get like some darkness. Like now, real darkness will enter. But I just don't think that there's no imagination. Like it's the movie seems to be incapable of imagining evil, imagining darkness. It's fun and like constant jokes and the most. 
like even the creepy it's just a lot of like people in uh in uh you know bondage wear like that's as like evil as it gets in the end and i don't think that that's like a it just didn't really like go there and situating that as evil that's one thing yeah yeah situating that as evil in like a grimy basement with like a guy who eats a rat like that's like the payoff (laughs) like a guy eats a live rat and and everybody's like oh god and uh you know lots of sex and then people are like having sex in the shadows like once again the sex is like the the ultimate taboo rule breaking public sex it just feels to me like david chazelle has a very like normy vision of debauchery yeah yeah and i think of evil and that was yeah i wanted to pick up uh nicholas's invocation of his mom's reaction to babylon and talk about watching glass onion with my parents which speaking I of the red hot chili peppers about... <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. there's a line in glass onion about red hot chili peppers anybody remember that sorry yes i do because because i had to explain no. to my parents that they're a band um <laughs> i watched it uh, to be clear my parents don't live in america and it was re- and they don't watch movies so they know nothing about pop culture and Actually, the reason we decided to watch it was because my mom watched Knives Out, uh, you know, a few days before that on Netflix and really loved it. And I hadn't seen Glass Onion yet, and I thought it would be kind of more of the same, even if more ambitious. I think Knives Out is also very pop culture savvy and, you know, feels very contemporary, but it is old school in its basic mechanics, right? It's an old school murder mystery. It's set within the world of a family and a lot of the tropes it's playing upon are, are sort of universals or or at least, again, a word we've used a lot in this conversation are like basic. And <laughs> Glass Onion is so different in the sense that it's current to a fault, I think. Um, and so even though, you know, in my parents' case, they're like really tapped out of the like American pop culture. So it was like, I just gave up 20 minutes in. I was like, let's just not do this because it's painful to have to explain like every line of dialogue. It's not even funny for you. But I think, you know, I did end up finishing it. And there is something so, there's something kind of superficial about it. And that it's almost ironic because this movie is trying harder to say something meaningful than the last one. It's really trying to critique like, techpreneur like tech entrepreneur culture and billionaires and you know I think somewhere someone I read someone comparing it to triangle of sadness and I actually thought that was a good comparison I I wasn't a fan of triangle of sadness but that honestly feels like a masterpiece in comparison uh, because it's you should see Babylon (laughs) okay (laughs) and then watch glass on you after (laughs) no but it's it's like there's just something about like Hollywood's even and Ryan Johnson, I think is a good director, but Hollywood's attempts at class critique are always so fucking bland. And, you know, just it it just lacks bite. And I think part of that in this movie is that it's just instead of saying anything meaningful, it's just stuffed with these kinds of um, very surface level references and takedowns. It's a big mishmash of rich people culture. It's like White Lotus or something, you know? That Red Hot Chili Peppers reference is like, right, is that, right? Like, yeah. it's just sort of like a bro characterizing the Edward Norton character as like a bro 
who like is really into right. the chili peppers. And plot-wise, it makes very little sense. I was really bothered by that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what I'm looking for from a movie like this is some delicious twists and revelations and... Um, Can I also say that my biggest problem with this movie, the really bad CGI ocean and, and like yacht effects compared to Avatar too. After watching, after Avatar, you're like, this is so fake. Like they're not in Greece. <laughs> this is pathetic. I think one of the things that surprised me about Glass Onion is in some ways I liked it more than Knives Out because it was dumber. I think mm. like it, mm. the, the thing that really bothers me about Knives Out is the like the trumpian sort of commentary is so it, like i watched knives out like semi recently it doesn't age well it like it's just like it's so sanctimonious that like it it, it just like really irks me it was like a, a part of that movie even when i first saw it that like really it was like i was like i don't think we need this but like with glass onion it's like so there's so many more things happening and like they make even less sense, and there's also this sort of like, you know, I, in the context of now, it would would seem like a critique of Elon Musk, but like now, like I mean, like it, when Ryan Johnson was writing it, it, was like not a thing, but like you know, this like send up of like this supposedly genius billionaire billionaire who's not, and like all that stuff, like it's just like so silly. And it was sort of harder for me in some places to tell if he was being serious or not. That, like, after a while, I kind of gave up on, like, trying to figure out where the plot was going and was sort of just, like, enjoying. It was, like, eye candy to me. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, this is, like, yeah, sure, this is stupid. But, like, it's fun. Like, Hugh Grant's there for some reason. Like, great. Like, whatever. Like, Stephen Sondheim oh, is in the, the movie. It's like, it's like, all right. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, like constant, the, the constant little cameos by people. Ethan Hawke shows up. I mean, it, it zips along really fast. Then it's sort of like dense mm -hmm. with these almost yeah. like sort of Simpsons, like, you know, pop culture references, like the part where they're, sort of, they're, they're landing at the island and this sort of, you know, translucent deck um, for the yacht to dock, it just like lifts out of the ocean and someone just goes, is that a Banksy? Um, and like that's, you know, and then it's gone. Like, and then there's later a reference to like actually how they can't leave the uh, island because of like the stupid Banksy dock actually only works at low tide. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole, yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the critique, oh, I guess I use the word advisedly is, you know, it's just basically like billionaires and like disruptors are stupid. These people are rich because people think they're smart and people because they're, Think they're smart because they're rich um but you know there's actually very little um connection between the two i don't think that's intended to be like a super profound realization and i will say um you know i watched this with my uh 13 year old daughter who like kind of kind of like the first knives out and then there's a point at the end of this movie where um janelle ronay is like running in slow motion as like explosions are going off around her and my daughter's yelling like this Aww. movie is great um so like <laughs> you know so like that's um that's that's the level it's it's working at here i mean i i sort of you know enjoy some of the jokes about like you know jared leto's branded hard kombucha and uh jeremy renner's hot sauce yeah the jeremy renner's hot sauce and dave bautista is like sort of men's rights youtuber who's like so, so douchey that he refers to google alerts as googs imagine having to trying to explain to your parents men's rights youtubers okay i mean this was painful <laughs>
I would have to if I watched it with them, but I guess I'm glad I didn't. Devika, you you raise a really good point because it's like it is like so it must be so alienating to watch that movie outside of American culture because it's like it is like completely incoherent and it completely relies on your familiarity with some of that stuff. But right, I thought you know The Simpsons is a good is a good compare. I mean, I don't I don't think it's as funny as The Simpsons, but it it's that dense with The Simpsons at least has like. It has aspects of like you know like visual comedy <laughs> and like animation like it, like if you don't know like American pop culture like why is it funny that Daniel Craig is like playing Among right, Us right. on right. Zoom with Angela Lansbury and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar like yeah. I, I don't oh, know yeah, Kareem is or the fact that he he has a Southern accent and he's sort of like out of place in this environment I mean. Some of that, okay, a movie being culturally specific in that way is not in itself a bad thing. But I think what rubbed me the wrong way was that it there was something a little smug about all these references. And they seem to, honestly, they seem to replicate the culture that, in a sense, the movie is critiquing, you know? I mean, it feels very kind of tapped into internet culture in a way that that I think defangs its critique a little bit. And it feels to me like the film, because ultimately this is a murder mystery and the actual murder mystery part is so weak and ludicrous that I feel like the movie tries to coast on these references as if they are funny and smug and like critical in and of themselves. And that is what like bothers me because yeah, just being tapped into American internet culture isn't like clever. You know, that doesn't make the movie clever on its own. Well, what I will say, and we maybe we can transition to this last movie, is that it does social commentary in a way that, like, is obviously the heart of the movie, but it can, if you think about it even more, it's like, okay, like, it sounds like he's just really trying to score, like, brownie points among people being like, you know, like, I'm a... I made this move, this huge movie that like costs however much to make. And like, I made this like hundred million dollar deal with Netflix, but don't worry. Like we're actually talking about like how rich people are bad and like, I'm hip to it. And like, you're all going to have fun. And yeah, specifically. Yeah, exactly. Like disruptors like Netflix or I I think it falls on its face when it does that. Now a movie that does it in my opinion, that comes out today as of the recording is the movie called Megan, which I thought like talk about a movie that is steeped in internet culture. This is like a horror movie, like produced by Blumhouse and James Wan of like the conjuring insidious and saw and stuff like that. Um, That was memed into like, into oblivion before it came out because it's about like a robotic doll that looks like you gotta have to you sort of have to be able to see her to really understand yeah if you've been like anywhere where there's a billboard or a subway advertisement yeah. anytime she's, recently she's got like a sort of alita battle angel sort of yeah. thing going on she's like got very big eyes like an american like, girl really doll weird, size plastic right? face Isn't she kind of like- yeah exactly she's like four feet tall um anyway this movie that like so this is a real movie i, I this just, is like, a real movie like but this is the thing right it's like <laughs> the trailer comes out she's like the doll is like dancing and also killing people and it's like you're like okay like this is ridiculous and then and then like earlier this week some people that i know had like seen advanced screenings of it and we're talking about they're like actually it's a good movie and i'm like okay all right all right all right maybe we're just like starved a little bit it's, it's early in the year like let's see 
So I see it last night with my girlfriend. We were forced to watch Babylon. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, and then I'm like, actually, you know what? <laughs> this movie is aware of exactly what it is. And the tone is not self-serious whatsoever. And there is like a pretty good like social critique in terms of like specifically like technology and like kids attachment to it as they grow up but it's also like it's like sending up so many tropes but like in a way where it's not like a winking sort of like well that happens like it's like oh no like there are like actual jokes in the movie that I thought were really funny and like and are more satirically like savvy than say like Barbarian from last year which I like hated I hated that movie and I think it was like suffers from Devika, what you're saying about Glass Onion, like that movie felt really smug to me because of like a lot of the stuff that it's doing formally. But Megan, which again, like, I can't believe I'm saying it about this movie because it's like so crazy. But like, it like, it's truly like, if you see it with an audience, you're going to have a great time. And the movie wants you to have a good time. It's like not trying to pull one over on you. And like to, down to the fact that like, you will be able to predict what happens and like, you won't be mad about it. It's sort of like, oh, okay, like how is the movie gonna do this? I mean, I don't know. At one point, Megan start the the doll thing starts singing bulletproof, and it's like so funny. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> so best of the year for you. Best best of twenty twenty. Yeah, so far I was like, I like this so, one was great. Sam, I know I you love actually love Barbarian, right? Am I correct? Ah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I like Barbarian a lot, and I thought it was like Megan very, like fun to see with an audience too. This is like. Um, maybe think about how like the Mission Impossible movies, among other things, are sort of like written set piece first, you know, like you want to have a thing with a plane or whatever. And then it's like, then they come up with a plot um, to connect them afterwards. And I felt like this movie was put together that way, except like with memes. Um, you know, it, like it just, it just like the, the dancing moment, which is like so, you know, iconic, like in the trailer immediately is like, like at the very end of the movie. Yeah, it's like the very end of the movie actually doesn't make any sense like she does it right before she starts chasing somebody with like the the sharp part of a paper cutter which why an office in 2023 like even has one of those in it i don't know but then it but it's like there's no reason for her to do that there's not even like oh she and the girl were like practicing tiktok dances together and then she just like picked those up they're just it's just in the movie because it's like that would be a weird funny thing to see which is i i don't object to in principle but um and i think the singing is actually great there's like um I think there's a sort of like nifty little riff on algorithmic culture here. Like the, the premise of it is like this little eight or 10 year old girl like loses her parents, has to go in, a, in an accident, has to go live with her uh, aunt, Allison Williams, who's like this, you know, AI designer that has no desire to have kids. And so she builds like real robot playmate for her, whose only job is to like sort of keep this kid happy. And it, her idea is like, oh, well, kids like, you know, being sung to sleep with lullabies. What if I sang her Sia's Titanium? Um, not a, a great song, not a particularly like comforting one to have sung. So wait, this is Steven <laughs> Spielberg's AI? Yes. I mean, it's sort of, it's a little bit Kinda, like yeah. that. And it's like, what if like AIs like, or, you know, algorithms like really wanted to please us, but didn't actually understood like what would, would do that. Um, so it, it totally like, it worked for me on that level. And I think it is like, it is ultimately as you said, Nicholas, like much more about like kind of kids and screen time than the, like that you get the idea of like that it's about AI run amok and it's actually just about like, um, what if you give kids like this, these, you know, devices or systems that are like 
perfectly suited to like sort of keep them like involved and like quote unquote happy, but um, like Im like divorced from like any real emotions, like you know processing the death of her parents and stuff. Yeah, so it, I mean, it, it is a movie like, I mean, you meet a character within and within 30 seconds, it's like, oh, well, the nasty neighbor with like the vicious dog is obviously going to die in some horrible way. And like, it's just, is it going to be like 10 minutes or 20 minutes is the only suspense <laughs> involved in it. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I liked about it, though, is like the suspense of the movie to me is not mess. It's not even like the danger of every of, of the human characters. It's just like how Megan is going to react. And I think like because the way she's played both by like the physical actor who is like her body and like the voice actor because they're not the same but like it's it's so idiosyncratic and like so ridiculous that like i think that was the primary joy for the movie or of the movie to me and also the the thing about like the kids in the screen time is like it's there and it's a it's an issue that the movie doesn't laugh at but it's also like you can take it or leave it. Like, right. And like, that's what I ultimately, I think is what's successful to me about the movie is like, there are other pleasures to be had even beyond like, if you don't even know anything about this movie and don't know about all the memes and stuff, I think like, even the part where she's dancing, it's like so ridiculous and so random that you're like, I don't know, the audience I was with was laughing like, like the whole time, like even when Megan wasn't doing stuff, it was just like, there are certain situational jokes that are really funny and like, the way one character dies is so crazy like it's just i think there's like a lot of joy to be had just because it's like the movie knows exactly like what you're expecting and in some ways does that but it's just like it knows that you know that they know that it's doing it and like it's not trying to subvert it they're not trying to like get out of the way of it they're if anything they're like okay like we're gonna do this but we're gonna like we're going to lean into it a little bit. It's like, it's also, it's a PG-13, PG-13 horror movie that like, is like completely bloodless. And like, there is a much gorier version of that movie that I don't know is any better, frankly. But like, it, it makes me happy to think that like a lot of people are going to see it. Like, or can see it. Like, yeah, and I think, I mean, it, it, it does seem like, I guess because everybody was just, has just been, every sort of studio releasing entity has just been like terrified of Avatar for so long. We're in like, like this January is January, like no January before. Like there's just almost nothing coming out. The big release next week is a movie about like an action, a Gerard Butler action movie set on a plane that they just called Plane. Um, that's like seems to be the level of thought that went into it. So and this from the trailer, like, it seems like most of the movie is them not on the plane anyway. Yeah, which seems I'm a little <laughs> upset about. For, I'm gonna talking to my lawyers about that already. Um, but yeah, this I mean this is this is like sort of the perfect like movie for this January doldrums. Like it's I mean I'm as after we finish this, I'm going to go and write something about it and think about it for a couple of hours. But I wouldn't advise anyone who's not. Um, professionally required to do so think about it for that long i think you can just enjoy it and move on yeah and you don't need to i think yeah that's the thing it's like it's a movie that you you have fun i wish i still had cable because i would watch this late at night like it's like i it's thought you were talking movie. about plane like, sam but i see now you're talking about no not plane <laughs> what what if plane is like an amazing i do like this trend of that. just naming <laughs> movies just like object table pencil <laughs> 
you know, things that appear in the movie, but are maybe not not even the primary setting. Somebody has to like take up the gauntlet from Michael Snow now and just do formalist movies based on nouns. Just yeah, all starring Gerard Butler, yeah. where he's got a pencil in the jungle with terrorists. Oh, Megan sounds like a really a perfect New Year new release vibe. It's movie. just fun. So I'm, I'm glad fun. we were like, ending on that one. Yeah. The cherry on top of our uh, our tripod of of blockbusters three hour I think only three hour long i mean somber blockbusters yeah, it was well glass onion is actually almost three hours long too right it, it was longer than i expected it's two and a half i think yeah and it's it, it was a hit right it's been burning up the charts so says netflix there's this yeah. whole super weird thing where they put it in like 800 theaters for a week mm-hmm. over thanksgiving remember, yeah. and it, they all right. sold out because it, the original was in one like 3,000 screens and then netflix took it away and then it apparently went to number one on netflix although one never knows to even how we even like to trust their data but it whatever hit means in the context okay of so we have like one so. one yeah. of the three major ones was a was a certified you know true hit avatar it's two hour 19 minutes by the way lest anyone you know take offense or come fact check me uh a little short of two and a half hours but you know still pretty long yeah yeah but you know if you want to hit these days you got to go three hours (laughs) or like megan hour 45 solid i mean i put on uh four nights of a dreamer last night and i was like 90 minutes baby like here we go and it just like it was like nothing like it was like the last half hour of avatar um all right thank you both for joining this is a lot of fun and this was so much fun thank you um so we will so sam you have something about megan coming up if if you guys want to shout out any upcoming writing now's your chance yeah i i I haven't written it yet i have sort of an idea that it's about phones um that is as far as i've gotten but yeah that'll be up uh pretty soon so look for my presumably very interesting thoughts on that movie any day now (laughs) Will do. Um, I just had an essay about Armageddon Time come out on Brightwall Darkroom for their Best of 2022 issue. Um, and I would rather recommend yeah. that than my thing. Actually, it's a great piece. So yeah. <laughs> so if I'm, yeah. Well, we'll make sure to check out both, and hope to have you both back on the podcast soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.